Good morning, church. Happy last Sunday before finals for those of you that are uh, still college students. I know as most of the people that are watching this, I want to let you know I love you guys. I'm praying for you, and I hope that uh, you all have an awesome uh, performance on your finals this week. Um, we're going to be wrapping up our series that we've been doing as a church in Revelation this entire semester. Uh, we decided that we wanted to look at what is this, this grand plan that God has of bringing redemption to completion? Because right now we've talked about this idea that we live in this stage of already but not yet. Like God's kingdom has already come in in so many ways. Jesus came and he brought that in and he, he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead and he conquered death and, and he brought the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes and dwells in us and there's so much that's changed and there's in so many ways we can see that God's kingdom has already come here yet. Yet, we also look at our world and we see this massive brokenness that's still very, very present. And we see that while God's kingdom has come, in some ways it's not yet fully here. And Revelation is the book that gives us a look at how is it all going to end. So today... Our uh, sermon, in some ways, is going to be kind of like an episode of MTV Cribs. I don't know if any of you guys watched that show when you were younger. I know when I was growing up, <clears throat> that was kind of a popular thing. I don't know if it's even still on the air anymore, but if not, I'm sure there's other shows that are like it where they take you through just some extravagant mansion or awesome place that a person lives. And it's always fun to watch those shows and see how incredible these houses are. But Revelation 21 and 22, which are the chapters we're going to be looking at today, I would say are actually better than an episode of MTV Cribs for, for a couple of reasons. First off, uh, the living space that's described in Revelation is actually a lot better than anything that you're going to see on MTV Cribs. And even though uh, th those places are really cool and it's fun to see what they have, the other thing you get when you watch those is like, man, I'm never going to visit a place like this. I'm never going to live in a place like this, much less even be able to go see it in person. But the nice thing about Revelation 21 and 22 is it's showing us this grand, incredible city that we're going to get to live in. And so it's not just that we get to learn about it, but it's saying, hey, this is actually the home that's prepared for you, for those that persevere and have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. But not only this, it's not just about the incredible living situation that we're going to have and uh, this amazing city that's described, but even better than all of that is the fact that God himself is dwelling in this city. And there's a saying that... Um, there's a difference between a house and a home, right? Like we know a house can be impressive, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good place to live until it's a home, until there's people there that you love and that you want to be with. And that's the greatest thing about this heavenly city is not just that it's incredibly and magnificently built, but the ones that live there and ultimately the one that lives there turns it into the greatest home that any of us could possibly ever want. So I'm excited to get into this with you guys today. Just to give you a little bit of a recap of, of where we've come so far in the book of Revelation, it's actually been a lot of trial and difficulty. We see through the vast majority of this book, it, it starts out with uh, the first three chapters being letters that are written to the churches. We see that 
Uh, they're all going through difficult times, some more difficult than others, but every one of them is going through a difficult time of some sort, and uh, Jesus is trying to encourage these churches to persevere. And then we move from chapters 4 all the way to chapter 20, which is most of what I preached through last week. We just see this succession of God's wrath being poured out upon the earth, and we see trial after trial and very difficult things coming people's way. But we, we ended last week with talking about final judgment. Everyone stood before the great white throne of God and, and he judged. And those that did not have their name written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire, which is the place that Satan and his demons were sent to be tortured for eternity. And unfortunately, we saw that that's actually the same fate that will be shared for all sinners that don't have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. And so we talked a little bit about what is this Lamb's book of life and how do we have our names written in it? And this is the gospel, the truth that although we're sinners and although we have rebelled against God just the same way that Satan did, we have the opportunity to be forgiven because Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. He was the lamb that was slain. That's why it's his book of life. And as he died on the cross, his blood was poured out for us. The wrath of God was put on him on the cross so that if we put our faith in him, we don't have to bear the wrath of God because Jesus has already borne it for us. And with that, the righteousness of God is given to us. And our name is written in the book of life. We don't earn our way into heaven because of anything that we've done, but rather uh, we are we are given access into heaven because of what the Lamb has done for us. And so now we're going to get to see this picture of what exactly this this heavenly state looks like, and uh, I'm excited to get into that with you. Now I will give you a warning here. There's going to be a lot of scripture that we're reading because I think that this passage in Revelation 21 and 22 is so beautiful that it's worth us reading all of it together this morning. We're not going to read it all at once. I'm breaking it up a little bit into four main parts, but I do want to warn you that if you have a Bible with you at home, I would encourage you to get that out because we're going to be reading long passages and there's going to be lots of times that I'm referencing back to verses. So I, we are going to have scripture on the screen for you, but I think it'll just be easier for you to follow along if you have a Bible with you. <clears throat> to follow along. Second, I want to tell you, when we read this prophecy out loud, the words of this book of Revelation, it actually says that we're blessed. Revelation 1.3, we talked about this at the very beginning, says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written, because the time is near. So I believe that you will genuinely be blessed by hearing this read aloud today, not just the act of hearing it, but hearing it and letting it come into your soul and actually acting on it and applying what God has to say to us this morning. So with that said, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to dive into the uh, first part of the text. God, we love you and we just thank you that you love us. I thank you that you have made a way for us to be saved. I thank you for the lamb that was slain and that rose again. And God, I thank you that he has a book of life and that our names can be written in it through putting our faith in him. God, I pray for our time this morning that you would uh, just be with us, that you'd speak to us, God, in our heart, in our mind, in our soul, in every aspect of our being. Lord, let us uh, be people that are encouraged by this home that you have prepared for us. And God, I pray that knowing what is yet to come will be something that helps us to persevere here in the present and to remain faithful to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. 
Amen. All right, I'm going to start reading here in Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and uh, I'll be reading out of the NIV. This is right after we've seen that great white throne of judgment, and uh, we've seen some that have been cast in the lake of fire. This is what's going to happen for those that don't. So starting here at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Okay, I said I'm going to break these uh, two chapters really up into four main sections. And really, uh, what, what I see the organization here is that we're looking at the residents of this new heavenly city. Residents as in people are, with a T at the end. And then residents, the actual dwelling place with a C at the end, the, the um, actual physical description of the city. And then later we're going to look at the response. What's the appropriate response for what we see coming? And then finally the recessional, which is basically uh, the recessional is due to a wedding when everyone walks out. It's kind of the end of things. It's essentially the, the end of the book of Revelation, the epilogue to it. So let's look at the residence. That's a lot of what we see described here in these first eight verses. And uh, the, the most important resident that we see in the heavenly city is God himself. You look at this in, in Revelation 21.3, it says that, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. The reason that this heavenly city is so incredible and so great as we're going to continue to see the description of it later on is because God himself is dwelling there. He's the reason that it's, it's going to have all of these great attributes that we'll see yet to come. His presence affects absolutely everything that is there. We also see that the other residents of this city are his children. We see that those who are victorious will inherit this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. That's what we see in Revelation 21.7. So the people that are children of God, now remember John wrote the book of Revelation. And in his gospel, we see this same kind of thing in the prologue to his gospel, where he says that as many believe in him, as he was talking about Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. So we come back to this idea that if you have faith in Christ, you are forgiven of your sin, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and you are actually adopted into God's family. And so as this is God's city that he will dwell in for eternity, we as his children are
are invited to come in and dwell with him. And as we see, it's, this is why it's not just a house, but it's a home, because we're getting to dwell with our Heavenly Father. And then we also see there is an important note to, to realize that not everyone is going to be there, though. As we saw this, this picture of the fact that God is dwelling there, His children are dwelling there, the very next verse, verse 8, talks about the fact that there are plenty that are not going to be there. Verse 8 said that the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they're not going to be there. So, a matter of fact, they've been consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is the second death. And so, while God wants us all to come and dwell with Him, right? We saw we talked about John three sixteen last week. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world; He wants us to come and dwell there. But for those that refuse and that choose to continue to walk in their sin, that don't come to faith in Christ, there is no other option but to consign them to the lake of fire that's outside of this city. And why is that? Well, God is perfectly holy. No sin can dwell in his presence. And so if this is going to be the dwelling place of God, then there is no way that those that are unrepented and unforgiven of their sin have any chance of being able to actually live in this city with him. So the offer is made to everybody, but it's not automatic that you'll actually get to live there. This is only for those that put their faith in Christ and become children of God. You don't automatically go to a better place when you die. There's an opportunity. There's an opportunity for us to have a fantastic life with the Lord for eternity. But you must come to, uh, to faith in Christ first. Now, I want to continue reading on here as we've learned about the population of this city we start to get a really vivid description of what the city is going to look like. So this is the longest passage that we're going to read. We're going to start in Revelation 21.9 and go through 22.5. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. 
The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. All right, that is a fantastic description of this dwelling place, this beautiful city that God has prepared for us. And there's a ton of detail there that we're not going to have time to be able to get into every single detail of what we read. But there are a few really important things that I want to point out about this city. And the first is that this city is well built. We see that this is a city that was built by God. Okay, he's a much, builder, a much better builder than even the most skilled humans. I see the contrast between this city and even the great cities that we as humans have tried to build. We saw in, in Revelation 18, this city Babylon, which was the, the great city that represented uh, human pride. And in John's day, it was probably meant to be talking about Rome, but I believe that really what John was trying to communicate was a, a city that was symbolic for all ages about uh, something that represents human pride and arrogance and immorality. And we saw that even as wealthy and as great as this city was, it was destroyed in an hour and we saw it going up in smoke. Yet this different city, this heavenly city, comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband that God himself built. And I can't help but notice the difference between this city and Babylon. You see, the, the first mention that we actually get of Babylon come, is way back in Genesis where people tried to build a tower that reached up to the heavens. We saw this in Genesis 11:4, which says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so these people, in defiance of God, who told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, said, No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to scatter. Instead, we're, we're not going to fill the earth and subdue it. We're going to join together. We're going to build a tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves selves and try and make our way to heaven. And so God comes and, and he scatters their languages. And with that, he, because of the different languages, they start to scatter out across the world. And this is what we call the Tower of Babel. 
And this is where we get the idea of Babylon later. Now, what's so interesting about this contrast is that while these people in defiance of God came together to try to build their a city up to heaven, it actually resulted in their scattering. But instead, now here at the end of time, instead of building a city that ascends its way into heaven, God gives us a city that comes down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And rather than uh, the building of the city resulting in the scattering of people, this city actually results in the gathering of people. We see that uh, the, the city was described as a place that the nations walk by its light and the kings of the earth bring their splendor into it. And so this is a multi-ethnic city. We see that in, in heaven, there's every tribe, nation, and tongue that's, that's worshiping God. And so now there's no longer this need for a scattering and filling the earth and subduing, but rather it's a gathering to all come together and live in the heavenly city that God has prepared for us. And so this is a very uniting city. That's the second thing that I want us to see about it. Revelation 21, 24 said that the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. This is a really beautiful and important thing for us to see. As a matter of fact, this idea of the kings of the earth coming and the nations coming, this is an idea that's much older than Revelation. Isaiah prophesied this well before even the time of Christ. And this is significant for us to remember because... In Old Testament times, the Jews saw themselves as a very special set-apart people of God. And in many ways, that was accurate. But one thing that a lot of them missed was that they were blessed to be a blessing. And it wasn't necessarily that God loved Israel more than anyone else. But Israel was part of his plan to bring redemption to the whole earth. And this is what we started to see happen in the church age. That the people of God were no longer just Israel, but rather that all of these nations started to be grafted into the people of God. Well, this is what we see happening here at the heavenly city, that all the kings of the earth, the nations are walking by its light. They're coming in and we are united together as the people of God worshiping him in his city. It's not just about Israel. It's not just about one specific ethnicity. It's about the, all of the people whose names are written in the, in the Lamb's book of life coming together and being with him. Now, as the city is uniting and that it brings all nations together, we also see that it's spacious. Right? This thing is huge. It talks about being 12,000 stadia. Th that means about 12,000 miles by 12,000 miles and then also 12,000 miles high. It's a giant cube. I don't know if that's a literal uh, idea. I, I don't know if the city is actually going to be that size. If it was, that would be a really, really massive city, actually. Um, or if that's just going back to all of this uh, numeric symbolism that we see in Revelation. Especially if I talked about that idea of 12 being one number that can mean completeness getting the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. So we see this 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. At the very least, what I think this is communicating is that this city is massive and it's, it's perfectly sufficient and, and definitely big enough to be able to house all of the people of God that are coming to live in it. Now we also see that this city is very, very wealthy. Look at the way it's described. Uh, Revelation 21.11 talks about how the city itself shines, saying its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. We saw that the building materials for this city are precious stones and gold. All right? like This is literally the, the city where the streets are paved with gold. 
Now, we need to contrast this with what we saw about Babylon, right? Because last week, if, if you listen to the sermon in Revelation 18, we spent a lot of time looking at Babylon, how it was this wealthy city that was brought to an end so quickly. And in Revelation 18, 16 to 17, we specifically saw this. It says, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls, in one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. And so we, we get this incredible contrast, right, between Babylon, who all of the nations of the earth thought was the greatest city, and it was so wealthy, and there was no city like the great city, which is what they said. Yet in one hour it was brought to ruin. Their riches were unable to last. Here instead, the heavenly city makes Babylon look poor as can be. It has streets that are paved with gold. And the... the grandeur of the heavenly city is so much greater than the grandeur of what Babylon had. And we also see that not only is the heavenly wealth so much greater, but it's longer lasting. We saw Babylon's wealth was brought to an end in an hour. Contrast that with this heavenly wealth, this heavenly city where we'll see later on, we're going to reign forever and ever there. And think about Jesus, God in the flesh, he knows what heavenly treasure is. He knows what it's like. He, he's been there and he comes and makes sense of his statement in Matthew 6 where he tells us not to store up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Sorry, and treasures in earth, but to store up treasures in heaven. Look at what he says in Matthew 6, 19 to 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, Jesus has seen the heavenly wealth. He knows how it's better. He knows how it's, it's eternally lasting. And so he's saying, guys, it's so foolish to pursue the riches of Babylon. Those are the kind of things that go up in smoke. They, they don't last. They're, they're pale in comparison. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And so not only do we see that this city has incredible wealth, but we also see that this is a very safe city. It has high walls and fantastic gates. All right, we see in 21.12 it says, It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. Big gates, high walls, and great guards with angels. However, we also see something very interesting, that even though the city has these defensive measures, uh, it, the gates don't even need to close. We see in 20, verses 25 and 27, On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so this city is safe not even primarily because of its walls and gates, but really because there are no enemies left. All enemies have been totally done away with. And so in some ways, I think that the walls and gates are simply there to show the glory of God and to be something else that displays his, his fantastic majesty. But they don't, they don't need to be there to keep anyone out. Now we also see that this city is restorative. It's very healing. This is probably my favorite thing about the city that I read in this passage. It talks about this idea that the tree of life is there. I'm going to reread 21, 1 through 3 just because I think it's so beautiful. It says, 
The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. There's no longer any curse that's there. And this is why the tree of life is there. And the tree of life, not only is it there, but it's specifically meant for us to eat from. We see that it's the leaves are for the healing of the nations. It spans this river that's going right down the middle of the city. And if you are... Uh, somebody who's reading this that's familiar with the Old Testament, this is immediately going to bring to mind some imagery from Genesis that we saw because we saw the tree of life in the Garden of Eden as well. And I want to read about that for you in Genesis 2, 8 through 9. This is before the curse. We see, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this ancient tree was there in Eden. As a matter of fact, we weren't prohibited from eating from it before the curse. I don't know if Adam and Eve did eat from it before the curse, but the only one that was off limits was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know how that story goes. They ate from that. And with that, the curse came. God cursed the serpent. He cursed Adam. He cursed Eve. And he sent them out of Eden. And and this is the passage where that happens. I want to read that for you as well from Genesis 3. This is right after God has pronounced the curses on the serpent, the man, and the woman. Genesis 3, starting at verse 22, says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So we were kept out. We were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and kept out because of the curse. You see, God didn't want us eating from the tree of life while we were under the curse. And I believe that was actually in his mercy because our life couldn't continue on in this way forever under the curse. God knows that he wanted to reverse the curse and to restore it. And when he does that, which is what we see happening here and in the end of Revelation, look what reappears, this tree of life. And it's here, not not being guarded by a flaming sword or by any angels trying to keep us from it, but rather it yields its fruit every month and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And this is possible because the slain lamb reversed the curse. He took the curse. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now we also see that not only is this city restorative, but it's bright. Okay, God himself is described as being the light of this city. And uh, as a matter of fact, we, we read this in 21, 22 to 23. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. God himself is the light of this city. Now, 
I, I think that this is important for us to grasp. I, I don't know, once again, if this is a literal thing of saying, hey, it's actually never going to be dark in heaven. Maybe, well, maybe, well, I don't know. But what I think the biggest thing is that John is trying to communicate here is the complete and total eradication of evil and the complete and total victory of good. John, you see this in his gospel a lot as well, uses this contrast between dark and light. This is a very common theme in his writings. And we see this idea that God is light and that he shines in the darkness and overcomes it. This is what John wrote in John chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. In him, speaking about Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so what we see here with this idea that there is no longer any night in heaven, I, I think the biggest thing that John wants us to understand is that evil is gone. The light has shined in the darkness. It has totally overcome it and totally eradicated it. And that's why God is such a more powerful light than even the sun or anything else. He himself is our perfect light. And finally, we see that this city is enduring. We saw in 22.5 that there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Babylon fell, but this city will not. Every great empire has fallen at some point. And the United States, our day is coming at some point too. I don't know when that will be, but every earthly city falls. But this city doesn't. This city prepared by God coming down of heaven as a bride adorned for a husband is one where we will reign forever and ever with him. And I want to move on here to say, what should our response be to this incredible reality we see that God has made this amazing residence for us and that we get to be residents of it? What should our response be to that? So we're going to continue on here in Revelation 22, 6 through 11. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and and when I'd heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. Alright, so here we see that there is a, a very clear response that we're called to as Christians in light of this reality. And the first one is that we need to trust these words. We saw in 22.6, the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord God who inspires the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. We've called this series, The One Who Is Faithful. 
And we did that for a reason. We wanted to point to the reality that God is perfectly faithful. And no matter how bad things seem to get in this world, we know that he will eventually fulfill his promise to restore. And so that's the same thing that the angel is reminding John here. That these words are trustworthy and true and they are going to come to pass. And this is something that helps us massively because if we know how things are going to end, it gives us the courage that we need to live in light of that. It gives us the perseverance that we need to go through difficult times. Remember, this book was written primarily to people that were struggling mightily. We saw those letters to the first seven churches. They all had major issues that they were going through. And with every single one of them, there was this call to persevere. And so here, as we wrap up the book of Revelation, we're brought back to that same idea. You can trust that this is something that's actually going to happen. And if you know how the ending is going to be, it can give you the, the strength that you need to keep going through the difficult times. You know, I'm a big sports fan and uh, this quarantine, one of the things that's been difficult about it is that I haven't been able to watch any live sports. Baseball season's put on hold right now. This is one of my favorite sports. And uh, the the best we can do is just watch reruns of old games. And so I'm a a Florida State football fan. I have been for most of my life. And back in uh, the 2013 season, the Florida State Seminoles won the national championship. And since I didn't have any sports to watch, the the other weekend I was like, okay, um, I want to put on that old game because it was a lot of fun. I remembered just how exciting that was to see this team I'd been rooting for most of my life finally put everything together and win a national championship. Now, the other thing that made it fun, though, was the way that they won that championship. You see, they had dominated everyone most of the season, but in this final game against Auburn, sorry, Daniel Perkle, Auburn was up big on us. Uh, the Knolls were down 21 to 3. And at that point, you can look at it and say, man, this team has almost no chance. You're down 18 points in the national championship game. How in the world are you going to come back from this? And it would have been easy for the players to give up. And even as a fan that's watching it, you kind of have a temptation to turn off your TV, thinking that there's no way that they can actually get through this difficulty. But the fun thing is the Florida State Seminoles came back and won that game. They didn't give up. They persevered. And for me as a viewer, even though I had very little at stake, it was easy for me to, to know, yeah, I want to keep watching this. I'm excited to keep watching this, actually, because I already know how this is going to end. And I want to relive uh, the, the way that they actually made this come about. It gives me the stamina to keep watching. And so here's the thing. For us as Christians, we don't know everything that uh, is in store for us between now and eternity. But we do know what's in store for us in eternity. So no matter what challenges may come our way, if it ever looks like we're down 21 to 3, uh, we're in a difficult spot, whatever it may be, we can know, hey, God in the end is the one that wins the victory. And that his people get to dwell with him. And so I'm going to remain faithful no matter how much temptation there is for me to sell out. I also think that this is something that gives us a really positive view on aging as Christians. Unfortunately, we live in a world that uh, has this mentality that your best days are behind you, certainly by the time you graduate college, right? Like if you just live for the flesh, uh, your body starts to decay after that, you get older, there's more stress in life, you got more responsibility, your best days are behind you. And you're really kind of just living out the rest of your days. 
But for a Christian, the, the, that should not be our mentality. As a matter of fact, as a Christian, we should have a very positive view on aging. Because we know that every day uh, we live is one day that we move closer to our actual best days. You see, as a Christian, your best days are always ahead of you. There's never such a thing as the glory days in the past that you wish you could go back to. Instead, you're always moving towards something that is coming that is way better than anything that you have ever had before. And so I think that's a very encouraging thing for the Christian as we get older. Now we see that uh, this, this promise is something that should allow us to keep these words. And that was what the angel told uh, John in 22.7. He says, look, I am coming soon. Uh, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Jesus is telling us, you are blessed if you keep these. Actually live out the things that I was talking about. And so that plays back into everything I was just saying about how if you know how the ending is going to be, you have the strength to persevere so we can be people that are courageous, right? Did you notice that in uh, Revelation 21, 8, the very first group that it was talked about that's thrown into the lake of fire, it says it's the cowardly. Now, that, that's interesting. That's probably not the first thing that you would think of, but that's the number one thing it said, the cowardly are thrown there. And there were plenty others that were listed too. But, but remember, go back to the context of what's written here. John is trying to strengthen the resolve and the perseverance of churches that are tempted to sell out under persecution of the Roman Empire, under persecution of, of Jewish sects, potentially. There, there's a lot of pressure for them to give up on their faith. And so we see that only the courageous are the ones that are actually going to persevere. Um, we have the power to be generous. We have the, the power to persevere because we know that we're going to be serving God in heaven. Now, we also see that another response for this should be to worship God. Right, John uh, fell down and started to worship the angel that showed him this thing. And the angel said, no, 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 don't do that. Worship God. He says, I'm a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets, with all who keep the words of the scroll, worship God. And we, as people of God, need to be ones that worship him. One of the things I've loved about Revelation is you see this heavenly picture and you see just how much God is being worshipped. Right? We saw these four living creatures that are around the throne worshipping him day and night. We see the elders that are around the throne worshipping him day and night. We see that constantly there's just always praise being given to the Lord in heaven. And so we are people that are citizens of heaven. Even though right now we live in this world, our citizenship is in heaven. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. And so let us be people that worship our king. If, if worship is what's always going on in heaven, let's start that right now here on earth and live lives that are worshipful. Worship is more than just singing songs, although we see a lot of that in heaven. And we want to do that. We're going to get to do that even here after I finish preaching this sermon, that we can sing praises to God. But we also worship God simply with the way that we live our lives, always seeing him as king and always submitting to his will. And then finally, we also see that another response is that we shouldn't keep this to ourselves. And 22.10 we see uh, that John is told not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. Don't seal it up. Don't keep this a secret. Let people know the time is near and they need to be ready for this judgment that's coming. And so we also need to be people that are faithful to go and tell this message to others. Now, verse 11 is pretty puzzling, actually. It's, it has this strange stuff about... Basically saying, let the people that are sinners keep on sinning and let the people that are righteous keep on being righteous. 
I don't think that what God is trying to communicate there is that sinners shouldn't repent. That would be against the consistent teaching of the scripture we always see where God is calling sinners to repentance. I think instead what that is is a rhetorical device that's being used that's basically trying to uh, communicate the urgency with which this is going to happen. Saying, this is going to happen uh, so soon that you might as well just keep on doing the kind of things that's, that you were already uh, doing. But ultimately, I believe that God wants all of us to repent. We see that call consistently throughout Scripture. And if you're hearing this message today, I would, I would encourage you, man, repent while there is still time. Yeah, these, these are coming soon. These, these events are coming soon. That doesn't necessarily mean tomorrow. It could be tomorrow. But remember, this was written almost 2,000 years ago. But when we see that this idea of coming soon, what it's getting at is this could happen at any moment. We need to have a level of preparedness as though this was happening tomorrow, even though it could be another 1,000 years. We don't know, but we need to be prepared. Now, finally, after seeing what our response should be, there's kind of what I've termed the recessional. These are the closing words of Scripture and the closing words of this book of Revelation. And I think that a fitting way for us to finish our sermon series on this book and to finish the sermon today is going to be just simply to read them. It, it closes out scripture beautifully and it gives a lot of glory to God. So I'm just going to read this and then pray to close. Starting in verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city outside are the dogs those who practice magic arts the sexually immoral the murderers the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood i jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches i am the root and the offspring of david and the bright morning star the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. God, thank you for this home that you've prepared for us. And Lord, I pray that we would be people uh, that just live with the end in mind, that we would have an eternal mindset, that we would uh, be prepared for your coming, that we'd live in light of that every day, that we would worship you, that we would trust that what you said is true, and that we would live in light of what you say, that we'd be good citizens of the kingdom of heaven who live obediently, God, we pray that you would help us to be messengers that carry this to all who need to hear, that we wouldn't seal up the words of this scroll, but that we would share them with all those that we encounter. God, I thank you for your word and how you've, you guide us and how you tell us what's to come, and that you give us hope. We love you, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.